if there's possibly some explicit language, listener discretion advised. Hello, and welcome back to The Wages of Cinema. I am Jack, and once again, I am taking a dive into the cinema immersion tank. When the truth is found to be personal for a moment i remember my bar mitzvah though it comes with a haze or something that i did over half a lifetime ago it was a process that on paper made me a man i went over the same passage from the torah over and over again for about nine months when i performed it i was on pins and needles and somehow just got through in truth i had never really learned the passage which as an aside i always remember was the last section of Exodus, and is all about the uh, technical things, the list that will be taken by the Jews across the desert for 40 years, whatever. I listened to the same recording on cassette, hey, I gotta date this, and practiced with the cantor. It was closer to acting in another language without really knowing the language. Recitation. If there was a translation of the Hebrew I was memorizing, I don't remember reading it. I do remember having a sort of edge to the whole proceeding at the time. Being 12, going on 13, and hearing how troubling it was for my family to have to keep paying to be part of the synagogue, I was on the verge of no longer having any belief in the religion. When I believed in God, even as a kid, I'm not sure I, I was, or I'm sure, I don't know. But by that point, I was a little sarcastic prick. There was video of the ceremony, and I'll never forget two things. After I was done and the rabbi said, wow, on stage, I responded, what, that's it? And I forget what led up to it, but the rabbi in the ceremony said, you always be welcomed here. And I muttered what I thought was under my breath, as long as you have money. Oh, fresh-faced and already forming a view of the world I was. I say all this to give a context to A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers' 14th feature film and the third nominated for a Best Picture Oscar in 2010, where the character Danny Gopnik is preparing in the two-week span of the film for his bar mitzvah, with the climax being just that. Danny doesn't really take that much thought about believing in God or looking at the institution of Judaism in any way if, say, the rabbis know just as little as he does. What does Danny do? He smokes pot. A lot. He also is concerned about the signal for F Troop. And what else? Not really too much. One can say he is his father's son, and while it's Danny's father, Larry, who is the sort of hapless hero of the movie, Danny made me more curious the more I watched this movie. That is, he fascinated me for how little is there, as someone who is not a man yet, but now is the time to become a man, bar mitzvah time. His driving thought in this story is, I still owe Mike Fagel $20 for that little pot. Oh, and by the time he delivers his bar mitzvah, he's stoned out of his mind. Uh, but more on that in just a little bit. I wish I could shake what Danny means in the story, but the Coens open the film with Danny in class listening to his little transistor radio. Not just listening to it, as the audience were brought in the film through a kind of dark, abysmal wormhole, and it is actually from the point of view of inside Danny's head. 
leading up to his outer ear, which is covered by the protective shell of the earphone bud, jamming out Jefferson Airplane, somebody to love. Then we cut between Danny and class, setting up the $20 bill and Mike Fagel just subtly enough that we don't pay too much attention just yet, and Larry in a doctor's office getting an, an, an exam and some x-rays. Will he find out the results of the x-rays? I don't know. A serious man is Joel and Ethan Cohen pulling a big question on us. What is the meaning of life? What is it? Looking at you in the room. Uh, at the end of it all, who knows? Well, one of the great mysteries I loved about digging into this is just how poker-faced the Coens are with their message, if they have one, and that people of different faiths will have varied reactions. If you're atheist or agnostic, you'll come away with the Coens' message one way, and if you're a believer, it'll be another. And yet, if I had to take a guess, the Coens lean more to the premise that the world is a mysterious place. And in order to survive with all of the shit that comes our way, we have to, as one character cryptically and hilariously puts it, accept the mystery. But what is more mysterious than the question, who is the serious man of the title? Something that puzzled me when I first saw the film in theaters in 2009 was what the opening segment of the film means. The first seven and a half minutes doesn't take place with our main characters, but instead is set in what must be late 19th century Poland, and is basically a short film about a couple who have to deal with a special, quote, visitor that the husband ran into while out and about, and yet the wife believes died years ago and is now a dibuk, or Jewish demon, of the afterlife. It's puzzling because it doesn't seem to have much to do with the rest of the movie. In interviews, the Coens say it's not connected. That's like, as Ethan put it, a short cartoon before the feature. But being stubborn, I tried to connect it somehow. Maybe these are Larry's grandparents or a relative of some kind. Nope, not the same last name. Yet it is connected to the film, incredibly so, aside from it having the same musical theme by Carter Burwell after so, and after so many viewings uh, in the cinema immersion tank, it's philosophically connected like an umbilical cord. When the wife stabs the man in the scene, again, she believes wholeheartedly that this old man comes to their home as a dibuk. The husband does not. The man says as he leaves, laughing by the way, God has cursed us and is fretful. She's not worried and shuts the door, starting the film. This sets the stage for what we are about to see. How are you going to believe what is in front of you? What do you take for granted in life? This point is especially important for Larry Gopnik, a married man with two kids who works at a university as a physics professor and is on the cusp of getting tenure. And at the start of the story, he's hit with a bombshell from his wife that it's time for a divorce. Damn you, Cy Abelman! More on him in a moment. While his older brother writes a complex mathematics epic about the secrets of the universe. No, really. And it's called the Mentaculus. And his kids basically ignore him, save for fixing the signal to watch F True. I remember years ago, Roger Ebert, or perhaps it was another writer, compared Larry's plight in the film as he hits one unfortunate incident after another to the Book of Job, from the small, say the racist goy neighbor who keeps mowing the lawn over Larry's property line, to the probably major, Clive, an Asian student, very much in the idiosyncratic Cohen's mold, who bribes Larry to get him a passing grade for a test he failed. Perhaps it's my limited thinking, but I saw a closer tie to Charlie Brown with the Peanuts. And maybe good old Chuck is Schultz's comment on Job, but I digress. What happens in life when everything is getting you down? 
Larry seems to be constantly just trying to get by to kick the football as Lucy, the universe, plucks it away. What I have to say is that consistently, every time I've watched the film, I've laughed. The Coens know that with such heavy material, they have to make it at least somewhat accessible. It's almost out of their nature to not try and find the joke in something. I wondered on my second or third viewing if certain things meant for laughs were necessary, like the constant use of the word fucker by the kids. How would they even know the word if it's a small-town, middle-class Minnesota? Not just Larry kids, but the other kids on the school bus with Danny. The fucker is almost like a comma in this film. Or, want some of this fucker when they pass a joint? Perhaps it's just because it's being said by a 12-year-old boy or a 13-year-old girl. And meanwhile, the parents mostly don't use these words. When Larry asks his wife if she and Cy Abelman have done anything, she says there was no whoopsie-doopsie. Um, the only time I think curses come out from the adults are when Cy, in a dream scene, says over and over as he smashes Larry's face into the blackboard, I fucked your wife, Larry. And Larry's brother, Arthur, is despondent and says, Hashem hasn't given me fucking shit. So... But there's much more that makes this really a comedy about pure, stone-cold existentialism. How to live a life. How to be responsible. The fact that Larry says to his enigmatic Asian student, actions have consequences. While inaction, as fellow film critic, uh, the nerd writer, pointed out in his video, is just as important. Behavior can always be funny. And Fred Melamed as Cy Abelman, every time I watch the movie, threatens to steal the show. He's the seemingly benevolent guy coming by to talk to Larry about uh, after his wife dropped the bombshell and even gives him a hug. Larry, we're going to be fine. He is, in all essence, a condescending prick, hiding behind his upright, upper-middle-class veneer. A small telling detail is that he's on his way to a country club when he meets his random, sudden demise in a car crash. Diffusing the news that Larry has to move out, that the Jolly Roger Motel is, quote, eminently habitable. And there's an absolutely brilliant setup that is paid off that I didn't catch until the third viewing. Uh, Larry's potential tenure position is in jeopardy, maybe, when he's told that anonymous letters have been received by the committee telling them not to give Larry tenure. Turns out, with just a seemingly throwaway line from Larry's wife to him during the bar mitzvah, it was Sai all along. Melamed soaks it all up and makes this uh, a firm, imposing presence. Melamed is taller than actor Michael Stuhlbarg, and even with a golfer hat and pleasant demeanor, uses it to hide what must be total contempt, and it's never not hilarious. Also funny are the little interactions and misunderstandings, which are a hallmark of uh, many Cohen's movies. When Larry interacts with Clive and his father, who tries to twist around the bribe into a defamation suit, he ends the comment with he ends the conversation with that "accept the mystery" line. What? But the sort of mini comic masterpiece of the film comes with Larry's second visit to the rabbi. In the middle of his pain, he's given the advice to see a rabbi. After all, as he's told and is known and is known to Jews, we as a people have a rich well of tradition and stories that give us moral comfort and lessons of things. The first rabbi, who is basically a fill-in for the rabbi Nachner Larry wants to see, is young and finds the parking lot as a metaphor for seeing God from uh, a different perspective. That's a thing from the movie. Uh, it doesn't leave Larry with much at the time, 
But then after Psy's sudden death, and by the way, Larry gets into a car accident at the same as Psy. Hmm. He finally sees the rabbi who may help Larry understand what God is trying to tell him, tell us, why we have such bad things happen, what life is all about. And we get the story of the Goy's teeth, a long drawn out fable about, uh, well, what is it? A dentist finds that inside of his patient's teeth are inscribed in Hebrew, help me, save me. This is a goy, by the way, meaning a non-Jew, i.e. Christian. And the dentist doesn't know what this means. He tries to convert the letters in the words into numbers, and as a phone number, it leads him to a supermarket. What does this mean? And then, uh, well, he sees the rabbi and asks about it, and that seems to be the end of the story. Huh? What? Nope. Then the dentist checked the rest of his patient's teeth, found nothing, and in time forgot about it and moved on with his life. This is a sequence of epic filmmaking on a kind of intimate scale, where some filmmakers might make an epic story out of outer space or the desert or finding your place in the world. The Coens focus all of their attention on how to put Jimi Hendrix's machine gun to a story that ultimately has no real outcome. What is God trying to tell us? What does the message mean, let alone that it's in a goy's mouth? It's an absurd story taken to an absurd point. To bring it back to Peanuts, not unlike when Lucy would be the psychiatrist and Charlie Brown would pay her a visit for a nickel. Larry asks the rabbi after the story, which has no real conclusion, why does he make us feel the questions if he gives us no answers? The rabbi says, he hasn't told me. This has kept religion and faith going for all these millennia. We want the answers to the questions, whether we get the questions or the answers, too. Should he just accept the mystery and receive simplicity? For someone like Danny, it seems to be the path that's not even in question. Just tune in to members of the airplane. Smoke out and watch F Troop. And what about the title? Uh, at Sai's funeral, Sai is called a serious man by the rabbi. And one of the three striking, darkly funny dream scenes, Sai appears in a classroom to Larry before he bashes his head in and demands he sees Rabbi Marshak calling himself that. Maybe he calls himself that because, rabbi, because Larry heard the rabbi say it. It puts the whole notion of being serious into Larry's head, so that by the time he tries to see the old rabbi, the third rabbi, because third time's the charm and all that, he's turned away. Why is that? He's thinking he's told by the secretary. We don't know who the serious man is any more than how God operates, or if there even is a God. In the Cohenverse, they have a method of turning the screws on audience expectations, sometimes to the point of making people go, what the fuck, Cohens? Uh, my, not my words, other people's. The Cohens drop in sudden things, unexplained coincidences, and circumstance chance, and everything is so blackly comic that upon the many viewings of the film, I found it got both funnier and more dramatic on each watch. Of course, it depends how much you feel for what is kind of a nebbish as your leading man in Larry. Sometimes he seems rather pathetic, almost by design of the filmmakers. The one time he cries, it's hysterical for us, as he just breaks down in front of his lawyer, and it's just sad and funny. Other times you root for him and want him to be the guy who he can be, and yet... The ending is something that came up in a lot of conversations after the movie came out. 
The film ends much the same way the film began, with Larry and Danny juxtaposed with cross-cutting, as Danny is at school, transistor back after meeting with the grand Yoda wizard Rabbi Marshak, whose office is like a mystical Jewish Dagobah, but I digress. And Larry is at his office making a fateful decision about the money he was bribed uh, for Clive's grade. Then he gets a phone call. Then there's a, there's a tornado coming towards the school, and the kids need to be put in a safe place by outside as the storm is coming. Mike Fagel doesn't have his 20 bucks yet. Danny looks on, with the focus quickly racking to his ear. End of the movie! Cut to black, a Coen Brothers movie. I have to wonder if part of this ending was the Coen's fuck you reaction to some of the critics and audience who found the end of their Oscar-winning No Country for Old Men to be unsatisfying. That it left things without a clear ending, that it wrapped things up with Tommy Lee Jones describing some odd dream. Of course, they miss all, they all missed the point of the Coens and Cormac McCarthy narrative, but that's another story altogether. Ambiguity is a good friend of the Coens, and a number of their films have left with something left on the hook. Blood Simple with a man shot in a bathroom bleeding to death. Barton Fink with a quixotic scene on a beach matching up to that of a painting. The end of the beginning and then looped around to a huh moment with Inside Lewin Davis. But an ending like that to A Serious Man comes close on a first viewing to seeming like a gigantic middle finger from two crafty stoner Jews who love to make little gags for themselves in movies just to chuckle for themselves. Possibly. That's why you should see a Coen's movie more than once, to see if anything more can reveal itself to you, while at the same time the Coens are nothing but natural entertainers. Before doing anything else, they want to make strong, vivid, memorable characters and places, and dialogue that is believable, even in their particular, specific idiom. Here, with one of their most personal films, set in their native Minnesota in the late 60s, if anything, the ending to the film is just how it needs to be. It took a lot of viewings, indeed the cinema immersion tank for me, uh, to realize that. But it all ends up fitting together while still retaining a kind of secret underlying message. Ultimately, I think the Coens are saying, well, we don't know if there's a god. And if you think there is and he can do something for you, more power to you. But since we don't know, how about we play god? That's the power film and cinema has to ask the questions and whether we can find the answers is up to the respective viewer. Um, why does God or the universe, to quote a much repeated declaration from Larry, do anything they haven't told us yet? Now for some odds and ends. One, I absolutely adore Amy Landecker, who plays the next door neighbor, Miss Samsky, who is the nude sunbather, who is, uh, uh, basically on, new, bathing nude outside in her backyard, and Larry's on the roof fixing F troop signal, and sees her. Um... She has one substantial scene when Larry goes over to try in some desperation to follow the rabbi's advice and help others. She is completely deadpan, almost like a robot, but all the funnier playing off the awkward, nerdy Larry with her orange clothing and iced tea and joint with the airplane's romantic today on, the, on record. Of all the scenes I anticipated the most, this one stayed the funniest in my repeat viewings. Two. I decide after all these viewings that it may just be a continuity flaw with the year this story takes place. Possibly. I say this because initially the impression is that this film takes place in two weeks in 1967. The Jefferson Airplane music from Surrealistic Pillow is from 1967. And yet there's this one phone call Larry has 
with Dick Dutton of the Columbian Record Club. And you know what the Record Club is. For those of you younger listeners, see if you can recall Columbia House with their CDs or movies. Okay? Good. He mentions that the next records Larry will receive are Santana's Abraxas and Creedence Clearwater Revival's Cosmos Factory. Fine, except that these are records from 1970. My suspicion about this discrepancy is simple. Joel Cohen was born in 1954 and Ethan Cohen in 1957, when they were each 13 years old and got their own bar mitzvahs, which is, and this is when the story takes place. Or maybe it has something to do with the word Abraxas, which is another term for God. But I leave that what, what that means for the scope of Larry rejecting that record for you to discover. Three, it tickles me pink to discover an actor who I had no idea was someone else decades earlier is now in the thing I'm watching. George Weiner plays the rabbi who tells the epic tale of the goy's teeth. And who is Weiner? Of course, he's Colonel Sanders in Spaceballs! What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? Number four. I wish there was still room for Sari Lennick, uh, who plays Larry's wife, Judith Gothnick, in the second half of the film. After Sai dies, she mostly goes into the background, and from a story point, this may make more sense. She would be an anchor of Sandy for Larry, but she's rejected him completely. This is after whatever uh, marital problems they've had over the years. But she mostly disappears from the narrative, and it's a shame because Lennick does a wonderful job of making an uptight, sympathetic housewife somehow not sympathetic so much as just understandable and human. When she sobs with uncontrollable sorrow at the news of Sai's death, it's startling, like she, can, she can't understand how this could happen. Number five, this is again attributable to the nerd writer, but I like how the Mentaculus, the complex math book that Larry's brother Arthur has created, is like the Torah portions in Hebrew. You can't comprehend what is in front of your eyes. Knowing what that all means has to make the stories work. Speaking of which, number six. I thought a lot about Schrodinger's cat. You know what the cat is, right? If the cat is living, it must also be mean that the cat is dead. And yet Larry admits to his pesky South Korean prodigy, Clive, that even I don't understand the cat. Later, the Coens would have another cat in Inside Lewin Davis. But if I had to suspect something, I don't think they know what the cat means. That's part of the joke. How much you laugh will determine whether you are alive and dead. Now laugh. Sorry, that's a Jeb, Jeb Bush reference. Um, number seven. The same music bridges the opening short and the feature to come, which is why I'm hesitant to say that the short has nothing to do with the story. Number eight. The use of dream scenes are among the most imaginative I've ever seen, up there with Buñuel. What I admire is how seamless they make the cuts to dreams from one to the next one. The first being Larry teaching his giant class and Sion being there with his I fucked your wife bit. Then the second, as it seems like at first it could be happening, with Larry in bed with Miss Samsky. Then Sai appears again with a death metaphor with a casket. Then lastly, it comes with Larry and Arthur, following a terrible outpouring from Arthur to Larry about how he, how God has not given him anything in the middle of the night. Then Larry tries to get Arthur out of the country by a boat. If anything is lost in the last dream from multiple viewings, it's the shock factor. Arthur suddenly is on the boat trying to escape to Canada, and he gets shot in the back of the head by Larry's goy racist neighbor. 
We know he's racist how he suspects Clive's father when he comes to Larry's home. And that's that. But what I love is how the Coens don't pretend to get the audience ready for a dream. It's just, well, here it is. Dig in. Number nine. Here's a uh, a sin, like cinema sins. Um, the guy who heads up Larry's tenure committee is Discount Judge Hondren. I'm going to repeat that. Number nine. The guy who heads up Larry's tenure committee is Discount John Hodgman. Number nine, or number ten, sorry, number ten. Speaking of Arthur, it leads me to my final point about why this film means so much to me and why I'm so emotionally connected to it. It proposes as its real message past all the questioning of God and our place in the universe to live a life without taking things for granted. Arthur reminds Larry in the midst of his hysterics of home plight in his life, he made them intaculous but his personal life is in shambles, that Larry has a family and a job. Larry never considers this, and on the flip side, his family takes him for granted. Some kids would, you know, freak out at parents getting divorced. The only concern for Danny is, guess what, F Troop and the reception of channels in general. He takes many things for granted in the film which may lead him to his Job uh, Charlie Brown-like state. If you take anything away from what the Coens tell you, it's not to accept the mystery or receive with simplicity. The message comes in one small line uh, from Marshak to Danny in his Dagobah room. Be a good boy. And being good means knowing what you got before it's gone. So, that was A Serious Man. If you've seen this movie and have any thoughts about it, uh, you could send us an email, uh, wagesofcinema at gmail.com, or you could reach us on Facebook at the Wages of Cinema podcast page. We're also on Twitter, at Wages of Cinema, and you could find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. If you're on iTunes and like what you hear, please uh, give us a review and a rating. We always like to get feedback from you. Um... And uh, when we return next week, Andrew will be back in the cinema immersion tank, uh, full of uh, happenings and freakouts and all sorts of things. That's all I'm going to say for now. Keep the suspense going a little bit. And uh, when we come back on this episode, we're going to talk about villains. Then the truth is found. To be lies. <sighs> and all the hope within you dies. Danbot.